0: Hi there. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to Dharma Punks. Next Tuesday, we are going to have an in-person class, and we'll be Zooming it as well for people who don't live in the New York region. But if you do live anywhere near New York and feel like uh, connecting with other folks, say hello to me. Then at uh, 7 p.m. at Grand Street Healing, 105 Grand Street, which is just the first first L-stop in Williamsburg at the Bedford stop. I hope you'll consider that. We do the class by donation. August 31st, we have our Pathways of Ego Transcendence four-day retreat in Garrison. We work with all the institutions to keep the prices as low as possible. So beautiful location with all your food and hiking trails and Buddhist teachings. So uh, if you feel like having a four-day Labor Day weekend with other practitioners, you can find the information on Dharma Punks NYC or if you're in my Work is entirely sustained by donations. If you like the class on Tuesday and it brings any small value to your life, if you want to support my work, um, the Venmo is Dharma punks with the next NYC. And uh, there's also other uh, PayPal and Patreon on the Dharma punks NYC website. So um there's been some theories that have been developed in the field of cognitive psychology that merit not only our understanding, but also fit neatly with some of the core insights of the Dharma. So it's kind of wonderful to note that contemporary science doesn't come at the expense of the Buddhist Insights. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, They enhance and show uh, so many intersections. It's quite uh, astonishing. And personally, I love having a spiritual practice that is borne out by contemporary clinical and theoretical science rather than. Uh, the field of cognitive psychology was first developed in the 1940s by a guy named i think uh, Jerome Bruner who noted that what we perceive isn't accurate but or, nor is it passive the what we experience is a construction influenced by our personal lived experiences first proposed this theory was that uh, he showed that children from poor families saw uh, monetary coins as much larger than the children from wealthy families. So in other words, uh, amidst scarcity, uh, what was lacking and necessary to survive was made larger in consciousness. So, there's no uniform or accurate representation of the world, rather the world is in our minds a representation that helps us survive, and we'll talk more and more about this because it's an essential point in the late nineties. Rao and Ballard demonstrated that sight the what we actually see is the brain generating. Internal images by predicting our surroundings. And it uses only incoming visual signals from the retinal nerves to note important things we get wrong. But actually, what we see is largely based on previous perceptions that have been stored. And so when we enter rooms or places, we're not actually what's actually there in the present, but what we've anticipations of what we think will be there. So, And this is why um, the thalamus only passes on a fraction of the stimuli necessary to the occipital lobes that process site to create an actual representation of the world only a a small stream of information uh, is passed on. So it's very clear much of what we see is just an expectation or an anticipation, not an actual reflection of what's out there. And all of this leads to what's now put under the global heading of the predictive brain theory, which is that our senses don't provide a passive window to the world out there. The brain exists in a dark skull, and the only thing it receives from the senses are electrical signals. That's what neurons pass on. They don't actually pass on sights or sounds or touch or smell. What your brain receives from in this dark skull is actually just electrical pulses that represent what your senses have seen. So your brain has to kind of guess, my brain has to guess or anticipate what's out there. And it would be impossibly slow. And in fact, in terms of energy used, it would be impossible to constantly create our internal representation of the world from what's the stimuli actually arriving. So for the brain to actually be fast enough for us to survive and to maintain enough energy that it wouldn't just completely use up all of our metabolic resources, it doesn't actually uh, process all the information coming and create a representation from the actual senses from the world, it actually creates a prediction. And the only thing it uses from our sensations are just the information that contradict our predictions. And then it updates. Uh, But what you are living in right now, what I'm living in right now um, from the predictive brain theory is not anything remotely or really like what's around us. It's just a simulation that helps us you know get around and not bump into the furniture, as it were um and as we'll see uh from the work of other important neuroscientists, in fact, it not only doesn't matter if our inner simulations of what's out there, our predictions of what out there are accurate, it's in fact it would hinder us if they're entirely accurate. The brain creates a model of what's out there that helps us survive. And so long as it helps us continue and survive, it doesn't matter if what it experiences is remarkably different from what's actually surrounding us. And we know this, uh, as we'll talk about from the work of like Donald Hoffman, who's shown that you know, the colors we see uh, the and other representations of the world are wildly inaccurate. We see colors that don't exist in nature, and we see distinctions in colors that are definitely not there. Like, for example, uh, we see green and yellow as very different, but in fact... Um, in terms of the light, they actually would uh, that bounces off of them. They'd be incredibly similar. But for us to survive, we see the ye- the color yellow and bananas as very different from the color green, which would be leaves. Uh, so to survive, the brain created a model that created this vast distinction that's not actually out there if none of your minds are getting blown right now, well, then you're far more jaded than I am because I study this stuff and I find it pretty mind-blowing just how uh, much uh, there's a kind of uh, difference between what we experience and what is happening in the world around us. So early on in life, we learn to predict which small circles inside of ovals um, are human faces versus the faces of the dog or something that's not a, a face at all. And over time, we learn how to use very little stimuli, or we largely anticipate which face is going to be our mother's face, not so much based on actually seeing, but just based on predictions, based on previous experiences and these models in that we live in remain intact until you know we bump into the furniture or we accidentally call someone mommy who's not our mom or we run into uh what seems to be a dog and we find out it's a cat i mean these are terrible examples but that's basically the predictive brain in a nutshell and uh, to be a little repetitious, but neuroscientists like uh, Carl Friston at the University of London, who's one of the most uh, significant neuroscientists, has this free energy principle, which is that brains do make predictions because they would be nowhere near fast enough to actually help us survive if they were actually working from real stimuli. Remember, it takes about a half a second for the occipital lobe to actually accurately put together the retinal information to anything that looks like what's out there. So we would be killed a lot of the time if we were basing our, our turn, inter- our reactions based on what's actually out there. But also uh, Friston shows that uh, brains reduce surprise by making predictions which conserves energy. If our brains didn't live by predictions, um, it would take up far too much metabolic resources. So we live in predictions, not incoming sensory signals. All they do is, uh, over time remodel and, um, Andy Clark, who's a professor of philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, uh, noted that what we perceive today is simply rooted in our predictive models from the years before. And I had an amazing example of this quite a number of years ago, which I, um, totally forgot about until I started familiarizing myself with the predictive brain, which is that, um, I went to a uh, therapist at the time for about uh, a year. And um, while I was going, uh, I noticed one day deep into this uh, bond we had that I said, oh, my goodness, you changed your rug. And he said, well, I changed that rug six months ago and at the time i just thought oh my goodness i'm not very uh aware of my environments am i but actually that's an incredibly accurate uh model of just how the brain represents reality because each day i was going in to his office expecting to see the old rug and that the the color of his rug wasn't particularly important for the therapeutic process, I didn't notice that the rug had changed. Now, if I was going into uh, an interior designer's house, who I was meeting with to get uh, <laughs> interior design, um, I would have noticed the change in rugs because that would have been more important to me. So predictions can also create stimuli that's not present. Clark notes that um, very often we can hear alarms or like alarm sounds go off before they actually do go off. I know I hear that in the morning. I'll actually hear the faint uh, music that plays on my iPhone to wake me up before it actually starts playing. And my brain can turn a stick on the ground in the park into a snake. And uh, classically after people's loved ones die their brains continue to anticipate the sound of footsteps or a voice in the other room so they'll actually hear though or and experience those footsteps or sounds and that's why we have ideas about ghosts and all that so um when uh new info disconfirms our old models it's Uh, theorize, that's when we experience anxiety. Anxiety is uh, not just um, the return of the repressed uh, content, but it's also the feeling of when our models of what's out there in the world, what we expect to be out there, are being disconfirmed by new incoming information, which is kind of a fascinating idea. And also, they propose that depression And fatigue are what happens when the brain for too long has to continually update its models after there's been sudden changes that are vast and drastic in our environment. The brain has to work too hard to recreate a new model, and so we feel depressed. Um, Again, Donald Hoffman, famous neuroscientist, notes that we don't need to have accurate uh, simulations. It, in fact, it's better that our simulations distort and emphasize our opportunities and threats for us to survive. And he sees what we experience as kind of like a desktop interface where things are like desktop icons. They're not really actually, we don't, when we click on a text document, we don't see a little actual representation of that document. We just see a representation of what looks like uh, small papers. And so that's what he said we live in. And now you might say, okay, I'm beginning to grasp this theory, but what in God's name does this have to do with one, uh, my happiness, and two, Buddhism? Well, you came to the right place because I'm going to talk about that. Um, the Buddha started out his core teaching in the Dhammapada. The very first lesson is he's the mind is the author of all things. All things are created by the mind. And the Buddha goes on to say that mind precedes and creates everything that we experience. We're not actually seeing what's out there in this famous teaching. We're actually seeing what the mind has created. And if that's not enough to uh, uh, raise eyebrows, the Buddha also noted that our perceptions are essentially um, what he called sana, or these, these, um, Constructions, we boil down all of the people and objects of the world into their core characteristics called perceptions or sana, which we then rely on to recognize these objects again in the future. But we don't actually bother anymore, the Buddha said, to accurately perceive what's out there. We just use these internal models to recognize, so we stop actually seeing people, and experiencing people for the way they actually are. Uh, and we see this all the time, and we experience this all the time in our life, you know, how many times do we have a few negative experiences with someone? And So the next time we see them, we just completely perceive them as, you know, irritating, intrusive, difficult, and we're reacting as if that's the case. And then only after a while do we realize that on this new occasion, they're actually being rather pleasant. Um, So um, according to the Buddhist theory of sauna, um, that there was a time unlike the predictive brain, which is that everything we live in is always a prediction. But the Buddha said at one point we perceived things as they were, but after a while, the brain just to, uh, just to proceed in a way that helps it exist and craving and live no longer bothers to see what's out there. It just sees enough to note, Oh, that's my friend that's my laptop that's my house that's uh my neighbor but we don't actually look at them we don't actually notice and so sometimes someone can say to us hey you didn't comment on my the fact i cut my hair two weeks ago and changed my look and you and we look and we realize oh my god <laughs> they don't have long hair anymore they have, in fact, their hair is an entirely different color, but because our brain was working on an outdated model, um, or what the Buddha called sāna, we don't uh, take it in. Uh, according to both the Dharma and contemporary uh, predictive modeling, predictions can be both very fast feelings, like uh, when someone, when we since someone smiles at us, the entire body predicts things are going to be okay and starts to feel comfortable. Uh, we in situations we expect to be fed, we predict it by creating hunger. Um, and in situations that are unfamiliar uh, socially, we predict difficulty by creating anxiety. Um, or our predictions can be conscious interpretations of the world. A farmer may predict bad crops as divine punishment or an example of global warming or an example she or he did a poor job farming um so we each have different ways of predicting and modeling the world around us and uh naturally according to the dharma and also the predictive brain, that clinging to our perceptions without taking time to actually look carefully or, in Buddhism, mindfully, causes needless conflict where we don't see the changes in the people around us, the world around us, and so forth. We're always living on these outdated models, unless we really stop and look very carefully and take in as much new stimuli. The brain doesn't do that automatically. We actually have to train ourselves to take the time to stop and perceive what's out there again and again and again accurately, Um, noting the changes in behavior of the people in our lives rather than predicting how they'll respond. Because people are always subtly acting in ways that are different to what our predictive brains anticipate. Um, And we see also all the problems that predictions can cause um, due to dogmatism, religious fundamentalists may harbor anti-LGBTQ sentiment and lose connection with their friends and their children because they're holding onto rigid old models that don't accurately represent the world. Or an alcoholic atheist might avoid going into 12-step programs and die alone of liver cirrhosis because they anticipated a 12-step program would be like a religious meeting when in fact they're very different. Uh, my models of the world feel very natural to me. To my mind, the Velvet Underground and Steve Reich and John Coltrane sound amazing. Dim sum is delicious. Uh, on the other hand, to my perceptions, opera is unbearably tedious exercise in mannered and shrill vocalizations. Other people hear the and perceive the exact opposite of what I perceive based upon their own individual previous experiences and what their families rewarded them for and so on. So whether we're Buddhists or cognitive neuroscientists or anything in between, it's necessary to stop and question our perceptions of the world. And we see this over and over and over again. For example, uh, Evolution produced predictions that anything that tastes sweet would be good for us because for hundreds of thousands of years, things that taste sweet, like fruits, were nutritious. So the brain developed this model that anything that tastes sweet must be good for me. So now we have multinational manufacturers of cookies and sugar water that hijack this dopamine reward system, which is an elaborate model that says that uh, everything that's sweet is good for us. And so we have a veritable tsunami of diabetes. Now, another example, um, it feels natural and the brain predicted due to its tribal origins that if anyone didn't like us or talk negatively about us, it was important that uh, we should really care about it. Because for uh, tens upon tens of thousands of years of our species history, we lived in small clans. And if somebody didn't like you, you could wind up expelled from the tribe and you'd die pretty quickly. So our brains developed these literally deeply entrenched models uh, that are wired into the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, that if someone frowns, or we think someone's saying uh, judgmental things about us, that we're endangered. And that's a holdover from our tribal origin. It's a very big waste of cognitive resources. And teenagers actually commit suicide due to the shame of social rejection. Uh, and in fact, it really doesn't matter Uh, in in a post-tribal clan human social organization world that if some people out there don't like us, we can survive just fine. Um, I had a wonderful experience of... uh, Uh, I write, I've written a lot of articles on Buddhism for a lot of magazines. And one day I realized that I had forgotten to actually look at an article that I had written, had written written several years previously. I just totally sent it in, forgot about it, and never looked at it. So I typed in my name in the article and I found it and I went online and I read it and uh, out of curiosity, I just read what people responded to it with. And of course, tucked in amongst really wonderful positive comments was this one super nasty troll comment that basically, uh, basically did nothing but insult me due to my tattoos and due to my openness about my, the, my alcoholism in the past and stuff like that, and just ridiculed the fact that I had become a Buddhist pastor and all that. So uh when I read that, I realized with enormous gratitude that I didn't read it when it originally came out. Because even though I like to think of myself as beyond and above the fray, when it comes to negative comments, of course, I would have been dispirited. But because it happened years ago. I never found out about it, and nothing changed in my life and That's a representation that if you know we don't know the negative comments that other people are making about us they it really doesn't come at any expense, but still, our brains deeply care about negative comments, about someone looking at us with judgmental expressions and so forth perhaps the deepest faulty model of our brains is co- due to what's called the default mode operation which uses all of our so much of our cognitive apparatuses and thought and somatic markers to create the illusion that everything we experience is happening to me that everything that happens is personal about me, that we are the center of our own universes. Um, The Buddha taught that in every life, there's old age, sickness, death, loss, being stuck with difficult people, disappointing outcomes. Um, These are universal experiences that happen in every life to everyone. Yet when they happen to us, we think the first thought is, why is this happening to me? How did I deserve this? Uh, So no matter, even though we consciously know that everyone gets sick, loses people, experiences at times social rejection, uh, experiences anxiety, when we get anxious or experience uh, rejection or get sick or feel under the weather or whatever. We think, oh my God, what have I done? What's going wrong? Why is this happening to me? Uh, this is just another example of how unfair life is to me. So um, this is all due to the default mode operation of the brain, which highlights and adds all of this uh, essentially personalizing quality to our experience. And the Buddha in the Savasava and so many other suttas talked about just how this one uh, model in our mind, this predictive model that everything that's happening, that I experience is happening to me. If someone doesn't call me, it's not because they've got other things going on. It's because they're dissing me or don't think I'm important. So to free ourselves from the outdated models that cause us suffering, the first thing we need to do is disrupt the most prevalent default prediction that keeps us isolated and lonely, which is this overlay that everything we experience, not only externally, but every thought and feeling we experience is mine, that my thoughts are my Thoughts, and no one else has these thoughts. (laughs) That my feelings are different than your feelings. My sadness or anger is worse or or more painful. And when we adjust our models and of the of our internal experience in such a way um, that we realize that they're not ununique. that they're not actually special. The Buddha says we um, we become what he called wise spiritual practitioners instead of being in run-of-the-mill minds. Now, sure, uh, someone of color will have different experiences, uh, uh, people of color have different experiences than um, Jewish Buddhists, or women, or people that are disabled. But still, within our subgroups, there are millions of people who share the same perceptions, feelings, experiences. And so we're never um, uh, unique or isolated And in, uh, in terms of our experience. It's only the constant chatter inside of our heads that create and maintain this illusion that we are uh, somehow uh, the first to experience um, uh, uh, insomnia as bad as our insomnia or our uh, depression as bad as our depression. Freeing ourselves means subverting the self-centered model by basically undermining the stories of uniqueness by disclosing our internal experience with others all the time. You know, do you feel this way? Do you have the same thoughts as I have? Have you ever had these experiences? What is... So even though someone else's sadness or loneliness might be a little different, in general, we don't have any unique a uh, special internal experience and it's only we can only update this outdated model of uniqueness and specialness by constantly disclosing to others their what we experience internally and that incoming stimuli forces us to reframe our predictions of our internal life Andy Clark, again, the neuroscientist at the University of Edinburgh, noted that we can reframe predictions not as threats, but as signs of readiness. So if our brain creates a predictive anxiety before we speak in public, we can actually instead frame it as, oh, my brain's predicting readiness. That signal is not actually a signal that something bad is happening. That signal is actually a sign that my body is ready. I'm getting cortisol, I'll think faster. I have adrenaline, I'll respond faster. I have um a, f- a h- faster uh, uh respiration and heartbeat. That will help me also. Uh, become more sharp. And so we can reframe our predictions not as uh, signs of imminent threat, but as actually signs of survival. Ethan Cross, who notes The Predictive Mind, a very important clinical psychologist, wrote a wonderful book, Chatter, notes that placebos and rituals work because they play on the predictive mind uh we every time we in the past have taken or most of the time we've taken a analgesic you know uh, uh ibuprofen or something it does to a certain re- degree relieve pain so that's why when people are given sugar pills uh, they experience substantial relief and even um athletes who in the past were given uh shots of steroids uh, in their knees, um, when they're given injections of saline solutions and believe they have gotten an enhancing uh, substance, their their times improve and their recovery improves. And the Harvard psychologist Kapchuk, uh, Ted Kapchuk notes that even if you give people Placebos that they know are placebos. He did this with 80 people with irritable bowel syndrome. Still, their predictive mind wanted it to be true. And 60% of people experienced significant improvement, even though they knew the pill they were consuming had no active ingredients at all. So finally, another way we can hack the predictive mind is through mental imagery, Uh, it allows us to generate um, predictions that uh, images that change our predictions of what will happen. And so we'll actually wind up living in these new predictions. Um, There's a study by a whole four Montreal uh, clinicians who showed that when people visualize motor skills being successful, like shooting arrows, I guess, at a bullseye, they're, motor skills actually develop, even if they hadn't picked up an actual uh, arrow in the interim. Simply visualizing it creates the prediction that we live in, and then we act in accordance with it, and then we have better outcomes. Um, Fascinatingly, contemporary neuroscience shows that brains recreate the identical neural and mental states uh when we're remembering something as we experienced during the original event so if i'm remembering a positive time in my life where i literally <clears throat> uh did something that i feel very proud of then and i relive that experience visualize the positive reflections and other people's facial expressions my brain state will change My internal perceptions will change and it will create confidence um, simply because now in the future, my brain will increasingly predict efficacy in the world. So um, I think that's about it. I'm going to now take some of this uh mishmash of understanding new theories about the brain and mind create reality. And in our meditation, I'm going to lead a meditation where we do some visualizations to hack the predictive mind and hopefully lead to some less stressful uh worlds to live in in the future. So um, thank you for listening. I hope something in there was interesting. And now what I'd like to encourage you to do is to find a really comfortable seated position and turn off your uh, screen if you like. And we're going to do a meditation. So, closing the eyes and just allowing your awareness to find some set of sensations in your body sensations that your mind are your mind is predicting are there but find some sensations that your mind believes are feeling good right now and focus attention on those positive feelings So if your belly feels soft and you can feel the breath in it, that's a great place to go. But many people experience needlessly tight abdomens. So maybe you'll find that for you, the sensations to start with are just those in the palms of your hands or your eyes, if they're not bouncing around behind closed eyelids. Maybe for some, the feeling of the breath entering the nose or the chest expanding and contracting. And just to uh, allow your awareness to move about your body. And if you find any sensation that you feel is needlessly tight, you can use the breath or just kind phrases in the mind or just your ability to influence your body with your intentions to try to soften the muscles around those tense areas so for instance if you note that your lower back is tense you could breathe into an area just above or below or you could imagine the breath moving up through the tight, contracted muscles, in the in-breath and then in the out-breath moving down and relaxing, or you could send a phrase of kindness, may I feel peaceful, at ease, free of suffering, any phrase you want may I experience ease and comfort. Then you can use this time to either move through your body, either from the most bottom sensations to the top or the top of the head down to the soles of the feet or just searching through for any discomfort that presents itself and just use your awareness as a kind of an inner ambulance core to go over and tend to any feelings of contraction or tightness or numbness you want to associate awareness not with anxiety or distress or worry but actually with this just a soothing spotlight that is a resource If you like, you can practice a concentration meditation to relax a little further by either counting inhalations and exhalations up to five and back down. So classically one on the in-breath, two on the out, thinking three on the next out-breath and four on the next in-breath. And then when you reach five on that in-breath, you start counting back down. So four on the out, three on the inhalation, so forth, counting up and down from one to five. Or just noticing the energy... Of the breath moving up the body with the inhalation and then back down from the chest back down to the belly with the exhalation. So the inhalation first appears in the belly, the abdominal muscles will expand, and then the chest expands, and then there's A reversal. It's like waves coming into shore. Moving from the lower abdomen up to the chest. And then the exhalation is the waves receding. So your breath becomes like a series of waves arriving and dispersing. Or we can simply Repeat a simple phrase. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Or you can simply have a mindful practice where you sit with a breath until something announces itself, it could be a thought or a feeling or memory, an image from the past, and just note it, but don't add anything more to it. Don't add any more thought or content, just note whatever topics present themselves to your mind And then once you've noted them, just return back to maybe the breath or the sounds of the room around you. So, it's worth noting that when the brain builds its predictions of the world, those predictions that we live within, uh, it tends to give undue weight to negative experience from the past. It's called negativity bias. So, the... all things considered, while in each life we have painful events and positive events, the painful ones tend to be more influential to the brain in building predictions about the future. So we can, over time, have brains that are fairly catastrophizing, anxious, or even outright pessimistic, Um So if we want to address this tendency, we want to be able to bring to mind and hold, sustain and savor positive experiences from the past, which over time our brains will then use to build new predictions And these new predictions can make us far more relaxed and far more at ease and confident. And these predictions will be more more useful and adaptive than the old predictions that keep us anxious, worried, Uh, easily uh, uh, negative in our anticipations. So what I'd like to invite you to do is to, if you find social gatherings to be challenging, then visualize people in the past in social settings who expressed delight or welcoming expressions if you anticipate or predict a negative outcome for something your some project or some endeavor you're dealing with bring to mind and hold in mind some previous event from your life, where the reception was positive, all we want to do is just hold an image. And if you can't hold an image, just whisper to yourself enough information to help the sense of that experience return. we want to dwell literally on what's been positive not to become rose colored lens optimists but simply to restore the balance the predictive mind is invariably negative or needlessly I should say, skew towards the negative. Imagine any situation from the past where the reception was better than you'd hoped. And if nothing comes to mind, just create an image, So at this point I'm going to invite you to take your time and slowly prepare your mind to return to the incoming stimuli from the world around you in terms of sight